But as we wrap up today our study, we'll talk about the millennial kingdom and then eternity as we know it, and we'll also go back and, and talk about some ground that we have already gone through. Now, many have asked for notes. We've told you about those notes. Um, there are numerous pages of notes. So, what we're going to do is instead of printing all of those out and, and uh, consuming all that paper, uh, if you are interested in having the notes for the prophetic study, and by notes it'll be an outline with all the Scripture references, you will need to contact the church office via email. Don't, don't call via email. If you don't have email, uh, stop and uh, next week sign up at the Welcome Centers. We'll put a sign-up sheet, and we will email the Word document, and then you can print it yourself and, uh, and t- take care of that detail yourself. There's just so many people here, uh, probably seven or eight pages in the outline. It's just, it's, it just doesn't make sense to make a hundred copies and not know how many you need. Also, many have asked about our notes for our Wednesday study. And our Wednesday study uh, really was involved uh, in particular uh, dealing with the ideological social justice and what the Bible has to say about all of that. If you're interested in those notes, we're going to try and do the same thing. That will be by request only, and we will mail you either the PDF or the Word document that contains those notes. Uh, I would ask you to do this. give credit where credit is due for those notes, and uh, understand that it deals with some very volatile issues. Just, just be careful as you work through that. Don't just go handing them out. I, my neighbor needs to see how crazy the culture is. Give them the notes. There's a context to the notes, and that's where you have to tell your story be, before you go passing those things around. But that's how we're going to do it as far as any kind of handouts. It will be by request only, and it will come to you uh, via an attachment and then it's up to you to print that out or to use it to whatever way that you feel you need to use it. Uh, last week when uh, we started to wrap up, we were just approaching the millennial kingdom, and uh, in particular, in dealing with this a prophetic future in the millennial kingdom, we were dealing with the judgment of the beast and the false prophet. And according to uh, Revelation chapter 19 and then even into Revelation chapter 20, if you have your Bibles, verse 1, John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years." In Revelation chapter 13, we are introduced to beast number one, a beast out of the sea. And then in the latter portion of that chapter, beast number two, the beast out of the earth. We believe there are two end-time characters, the second beast being the Antichrist, the first beast being some kind of Roman prince or political and military dictator. And they will seize control at the abomination that makes desolate or the abomination of desolation. That will be in your notes, uh, just a reminder of what we've covered prior to this. And they will fall under judgment at the second coming of Jesus Christ before the ushering in of the kingdom. They will be bound. They will be uh, put into this, this, this pit. He will seize the dragon. He will uh, judge uh, the, the uh, two end-time characters along with the judgment of the nations, and He will bind Satan himself. 
And that with the binding of Satan, it assures that this millennial kingdom will be a kingdom of righteousness. It will be a kingdom of truth. It will be a kingdom in which Satan is not the prince and the power of the air, ruling and, and wreaking havoc in the world. He is going to be bound in that pit for the duration of the millennial time frame, only to be released at the end of that period. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that in, in a little bit. But with the binding of, of the dragon and with the minimization, minimalization of, of, of evil because these end-time characters are finally judged and Satan is bound, the kingdom will be a kingdom of righteousness. But we did tell you that there will be natural people who will survive the tribulation period, believers only, who will enter into that millennial time frame, and they will have natural sinful bodies, not the glorified bodies of Old Testament saints, not the glorified bodies of New Testament saints, but they will be flesh and blood living creatures, and they will enter into the kingdom, and they will have children. And because of that, there is still the presence of sin, but it is minimized by the binding of Satan. So although there may still be sin because of these living beings who are translated into the millennial kingdom and, and their birthing of children, any kind of sin will be judged immediately in this kingdom of righteousness, and evil will be great and gravely curtailed because the king is on the throne, and Satan is bound to be loosed or released at the end of that millennial kingdom. So when we talk about the beast and, and the false prophets and, and, and the binding of Satan himself, it leads us to a place of the resurrection of Old Testament and tribulation saints. And uh, this is where it gets uh, somewhat confusing when it talks about uh, the order of resurrection and the number of different resurrections that we read about in the New Testament, particularly in the prophetic future, the resurrections in the New Testament. Now, as you know already, Christ has been resurrected from the dead. He is the first fruit. He is, he is the first of resurrection. And the first resurrection really deals with a resurrection unto life, a resurrection unto life, where the second or final resurrection is a resurrection unto death. And, and we'll explain that in a little bit. But when we deal with resurrection in the context of the prophetic future in eschatology, it begins with the rapture of the church where we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that the dead in Christ will rise first. So it's a resurrection of life. The dead in Christ, uh, they rise first. They get a glorified body. They're with us in heaven. And that's the first phase of that first resurrection following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is now going to be a second resurrection or a second phase of the first resurrection, all right? Remember, the first resurrection is a resurrection unto life. So the people who are resurrected to life in the second phase of the first resurrection, almost identical or at least similar to the rapture of the church, will be redeemed or righteous individuals from the Old Testament time frame, believing Israel, they will be resurrected to life, 
And the Old Testament saints that we read about in the book of the Revelation who are crying for vengeance before the throne of God, these are believers in the tribulation who are killed for their faith. Remember that passage of Scripture? We've read it a number of times here. They also will be resurrected, given a glorified body to be part of or participate in this millennial kingdom rule of Christ. So first, in this system of resurrections, at the rapture of the church, the dead of the church age will rise. Now at the end of the tribulation period, seven years later, in preparation for this millennial kingdom will be the resurrection of Old Testament and tribulation saints. Verse 4, then I saw thrones and seated on them, uh, verse 4 of chapter 20, book of Revelation, to whom had authority to judge was committed. And also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God. These are those tribulation saints who had lost their lives for their faith in the tribulation. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads and their can- or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This was the first resurrection. Again, that first resurrection, a resurrection to life. Now, why is redeemed Israel resurrected at that time and given entrance into the millennial kingdom? Because in the millennial kingdom, in that thousand-year reign, is where Christ is going to fulfill all of the promises that He made to redeemed Israel. All of the promises that He made to, to uh, Israel and, and, and those who believed in the coming of the Messiah. It is during that kingdom reign that all of those promises will find their fulfillment as Christ is seated and the throne of David in Jerusalem, ruling in a kingdom of righteousness. So the end of that resurrection of life is that second phase of the resurrection of tribulation saints, those who were martyred for their faith in the seven-year tribulation, and those Old Testament saints who believed and it was counted to them for righteousness. They will be resurrected, and they will serve with Christ in this millennial kingdom as He fulfills all the promises that He has made to them by the prophets throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. It identifies this resurrection of life as the first resurrection, because the second resurrection will be of a different character altogether. We'll look at that towards the end of our session today. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death hath no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign for Him a thousand years. They will be a part of this millennial kingdom reign, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of justice, and a kingdom of truth. It completes that first resurrection, not the resurrection of Christ, but the first resurrection of saints, the church-age saints at the rapture, tribulation, and Old Testament saints at the second coming of Jesus Christ in preparation for the kingdom. And through the judgment of the nations, uh, those who are disobedient are, of course, uh, not allowed entrance into the kingdom and come under the judgment of God. Uh, They will be resurrected at a later time, but it's not a resurrection of life. It is a resurrection of eternal damnation 
and judgment. uh, We'll get to that in a little bit. So we're talking about the first and second phases of the first resurrection. There's also a resurrection unto death. It's called the great white throne judgment. It completes God's plan of resurrection through the ages, and it culminates in that final judgment prior to eternity that we all talk about and and, and think about. Um, And we'll give some particulars as as we move on. So the resurrection of Old Testament and tribulation saints now prepares or has prepared to enter this world as we know it into this millennial kingdom, and the millennial kingdom will follow on the heels of these judgments and will be a result of Christ assuming His rightful throne and the throne of David. And the kingdom will be a kingdom of righteousness, it will be a kingdom of obedience, it will be a kingdom of holiness, it will be a kingdom of truth, and it will be a kingdom of fulfillment. So all of the promises that Israel is still waiting for to be uh, ultimately fulfilled will be fulfilled during that millennial reign of Christ and that earthly kingdom under the lordship of Jesus Christ that lasts clearly, according to the Scripture, a thousand years. Chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, verse 3 And he threw them into the pit, devil and Satan, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended, the thousand years of this millennial kingdom. And uh, after this millennial kingdom, he will be released for a little while. We don't have the time to spend in looking at the prophecies of Isaiah and other prophets as to uh, what really transpires in that kingdom, but it's a glorious time of of righteousness and rule uh, by the King of kings and Lord of lords, uh, the the Christ of truth. Uh, The fulfillment of those promises has been uh, waited for for generations upon generations for faithful Israel. And as they are part of that kingdom, as they're reigning with Him for a thousand years, as they're experiencing the fulfillment of all of those promises, it will be a special time on the face of this earth. But again, there are still these natural men and women who are bearing children, who possess that sin that resides in the flesh and must come to a point in time to yield themselves as instruments of unrighteousness to that sinful flesh or righteousness unto God. You would think that in a time of peace and prosperity and holiness and righteousness that it would be a given that everyone in the kingdom would, would denounce their sin and embrace the rule of the Savior, the King that sits on the throne of David. But unfortunately, that's simply not the case, at least described for us in the book of Revelation. If you turn to Revelation chapter 20, verse 7, at the end of this kingdom of righteousness and truth, in the end of this kingdom of fulfillment, Satan, who has been bound now for 1,000 years in the pit, 
is released. John in chapter 20, verse 7 of Revelation says, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. There are so many haunting phrases in this prophetic account of John. So now we're at the end of this kingdom of righteousness and holiness and justice and fulfillment. These natural-born people who are alive at the end of that millennial kingdom, who still have sin in this flesh and have held out their allegiance to this King of kings and Lord of lords, will be captured in their minds and in their hearts by Satan, who's now released from this bottomless pit and leads them into the ultimate deception where they revolt against this Christ who has presided over this kingdom, a kingdom in which they lived and experienced all of its bounty and all of its glory and all of its holiness and all of its justice. But as soon as Satan is released, they turn on the king. They revolt against the king. They're gathered together for battle, and the number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were bound at the beginning that millennial kingdom, and they were torn-pended day and night forever and ever. Stop and think about this for a minute. The captive power of sin, the sinfulness that we carry around in our flesh is such a powerful agent and agency that even as these people lived through that kingdom era, and now at the end of that kingdom in their fleshly bodies, not glorified bodies, they weren't a part of any resurrection. This power of sin is so great, and the deception of Satan is so holistic and conclusive that in this brief moment, they believe the lie, and they, they, they turn against the king. And they decide that they're going to overthrow the king, and they gather together surrounding the place of the king in Jerusalem, and God destroys them. He kills all of them. Now, He's not killing those with glorified bodies. That's appointed unto man once to die. They've already died. They're now alive. Only those who still have sin in the flesh and have rejected and resisted the holiness and righteousness of the kingdom are those who will revolt against God at the end. It just is an alarming picture of how persuasive and uh, deceitful the evil one is, and how powerful this, this sin is that, that resides in the unredeemed. And they're immediately judged, and Satan is finally finished. For all eternity, he is now cast into the lake of fire along with these two beasts of Revelation chapter 13, to be tormented day and night forever and ever. Another haunting phrase 
in the eschatological future, tormented forever and forever. There are some even in the church today who call themselves evangelicals who believe that eventually everyone will make it to heaven because God's love is that big. But that's not what the Scripture teaches. There is a very real hell. There's a real place of torment, and His residence will reside there for the rest of forever. It's difficult to get our minds around this. When you juxtapose the holiness of God with the unrighteousness of man, and the consequences of that, even in the midst of the kingdom, the pull of our sinful flesh or the sinful flesh of those residing in the kingdom, and the deception of the evil one is so great that they will be consumed and judged by the Savior. They will be resurrected. In fact, that resurrection will take place shortly after, shortly after that earthly judgment which fire consumes them having come down out of heaven, and Revelation 20 introduces us to that second resurrection. The first resurrection, a resurrection unto life. The second resurrection, a resurrection unto death, this time eternal death. And we begin to read in verse 11, and then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. And from His presence, the earth and the sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what he had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, that is, the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The unbelieving deceased of all ages and all times, even those just consumed at the end of this millennial kingdom and this final revolt of Satan, will all be resurrected to stand before the judgment of God. This is not the same as the Bema Seat judgment. That is a judgment of believers. It's a judgment of those who have been resurrected to life. It is a judgment based on how we live that life in this world. This is a resurrection of judgments. So on this great white throne is God in all of His glory, His presence so grand and great that everything flees from Him, and in front of Him and this great white throne of judgment are all of the unbelievers of all of the ages of all times from Genesis chapter 3 onward. And they are judged based on whether or not they're their name is in the book of life, and it's not, because if it was in the book of life, they would have been resurrected in the first resurrection, which was a resurrection unto life. These are those who never believed, who rejected the message, who rejected God, who rejected the gospel, who rejected Christ, and they will all stand before this great white throne judgment, 
and all of these individuals will be thrown into the lake of fire, the eternal fire of hell, which is the second death. There is no more hope of resurrection. There is no more hope of redemption. There is no more hope of promise. Their fate is sealed, and they will spend the rest of eternity in this lake of fire, this place called hell, and death and Hades thrown into the fire. And anyone's name that was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. I often wonder what transpires at these judgments. There's a curiosity in me that says, how are we going to respond when we stand before the beam of seat of Christ? We're not going to be judged. We're, we're in the beloved. <laughs> but I wonder if there's going to be some remorse and regret and disappointment as we stand in the presence of our King and realize, boy, life was filled with a lot of missed opportunities. And I'm not talking to anyone in particular, I'm talking to all of us. Life was filled with a lot of missed opportunities. The glorious thing is that you get an award for something that you couldn't do without Him anyhow. Go figure, right? But I wonder about the regret at the great white throne judgment. When there's a final realization that everything flees from the presence of this God of all of the earth. Everything flees. And they begin to realize the eternal judgment that was upon them. I don't know this to be true. It's something that I believe to be true based upon the teachings of Scripture. I do believe there's going to be regret at the beam of seat of Christ. I, I do believe there's going to be disappointment. I do believe that, that we're going to carry a weight as much as you can in the presence of your king. You follow me? It'll be short-lived, but I do believe they're going to realize, man, we blew it. We blew it. I also believe that there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth at the great white throne judgments. There will be those who still stand in defiance of this, this God of all creation, even though the mountains flee. I don't know if we'll have the ability to see this great white throne judgment. But, but I would suspect that, that if by chance we do, there will be grave weeping and wailing from God's people as they see family members and friends, and we, we get the picture, don't you? We often say that this place of heaven is just a perfect place, and of course it is. But there's a terrible time coming in the great white throne judgment, where I believe that there will be some serious grieving, um, some serious wailing, some serious crying out. As this millennial kingdom comes to a conclusion, the resurrections are finished, everyone has been sent to their appropriate place, believer into the presence of God, unbeliever bound in this bottomless pit, this, this hell with the devil. And we enter into 
According to John in his Revelation chapter 21, a period of a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. And this is why I believe that there will be remorse and regret and, and, and tears at the Bema and great white throne. It's not until this new heaven and new earth, after the passing of the thousand years, that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I don't believe at the Bema seat, and if by chance the righteous are able to perceive of what's happening at the great white throne and there is weeping and, and, and wailing. I don't perceive that to last any length of time because we're in the presence of God. We're basking in His glory. It, it will be short-lived, but all of that is not erased until after the great white throne judgment. It's only then that there'll be no more crying and no more tears and no more death and no more mourning nor crying nor pain. I, I wonder if that's a, a picture of the weeping and the wailing as these individuals are thrown into hell for eternity that quickly evaporates as we're translated into this presence of, of God Almighty, to the presence of our King Jesus, who we who we behold as seated on the throne, verse 5, and revealing, behold, I make all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. And the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. For the cowardly and the faithless and the detestable and for murderers and the sexually immoral and sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. To Rob Bell and everyone after Rob Bell and even before Rob Bell who believe in some universalism that everyone gets to heaven eventually, the Scriptures make it perfectly clear they don't. Everyone either is in the presence of God for eternity or in the presence of the evil one in torment for eternity. There's no middle way. There's no alternative. There is no restoration. It is the second death. It is the eternal death where life is no longer possible. For whatever reason, we don't like to dabble in the passages of Scripture that describe hell and describe situations such as this, but they're very real, very, very real, and that eternal destiny in the presence of a new heaven and a new earth with our God changes once and for all everything, everything 
everything. The Bible describes this lake which burns with fire. It's a place of darkness. A place with habitual crying and gnashing of teeth. Perhaps worst of all, a place with an awareness that they're absent from the presence of God and have no hope of ever being in the presence of God. It is hell. Sometimes we talk about hell in some of the descriptive terms of Scripture, but hell is really the ultimate and eternal separation from the God who created you in His image. It's a terrible place. You hear people joke, well, that's all where all my friends are going to go. I'd be happy to go there. What a grievous error. What a caricature of hell. Maybe the world won't ever take it serious unless we do. Remember, C.S. Lewis, you've never met a mere mortal. Every person is a living soul, and their destiny will be one of those places. There's serious ramifications for that and how we live our lives and the preaching of the gospel, the faithfulness to the Scriptures, serious ramifications for the hope that we cling to even in the worst of times. So in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15, we see the final state of the lost, and that is hell as we know it, the lake of fire. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 that we just read, we see the opposite of that. We see the final state of the redeemed, you and I, those of us who know the King, who have been blessed to be His children, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. There's a glorious vision that He has of the new Jerusalem. There are a number of different views that come out of that. It is pretty descriptive of, of heaven in the sense of some of the language that is used there, some of the things that John was permitted to see in the context of, of that, that final state of the redeemed. The final state of the redeemed is not in the place, but in the person of the God who created us. And what God started in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God, He will finish. We see that recorded for us in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22 with God. That's the story. That's the story. That's our story. That is the story of prophecy. As we reflect upon that prophecy, I would remind you the purpose of our study. Number one, we said we are studying prophecy because it's a profitable doctrine of Scripture. Someone say, well, how is it in any way profitable for us to talk about this lake of fire and eternal damnation? It's absolutely profitable because it's true. Whether we want it to be true or not, it's, it's true. It's all true or none of it's true. It just reminds us of our mortality. It reminds us of our story as a believer. It will be a reminder of eternity 
of the story of all unbelievers, separated and reminded of that separation for the rest of forever. Well, how long does that last, Pastor Jim? (laughs) See, even in our adult minds, we ask children's questions sometimes, don't we? I I can't comprehend eternity. Sometimes it's easy to fall prey to these notions, well, it'll be bad enough so they'll know, but it won't last forever. No, the Bible says it's going to last forever, eternity. It's a profitable doctrine of Scripture because it, it points out and it reminds us of what's going to happen and what it is that really matters most in life, particularly that brevity of life lived under the Son. You understand all of the consequences of the first resurrection and the second resurrection take place in the context of a life of 70 or 80 years? You understand how, how long 70 or 80 years are and this continuum of eternity, a blink of an eye, a vapor that rises and goes away, a flower that quickly fades, and yet within the context of that life, there are decisions made and consequences to those decisions that are eternal in nature, forever and forever and forever and forever. It's exactly why the Scripture says now is the time for salvation. Now's the time to reconcile all of these. And unless we talk about the impending state of the unredeemed, unless we think about every human being as an eternal soul destined to one place or the other, this study becomes some study of fascination and predictions that we try and figure out, well, who is this Antichrist? Well, I'll tell you who he is. He's an evil person empowered by Satan, all right? And that's all you need to know. He's coming. If the rapture's going to happen in my lifetime, he's here already. I just don't know who he is. But he's here already, these workers of iniquity. Scripture and the doctrine of hell is a very profitable doctrine as uncomfortable as it makes us. Maybe I'm just too emotional and passionate as a person, too, but how can you not be grieved at the funeral of someone who died without any hope? How can, how can you not be crushed in your spirit? How can, that, how can you not be broken that that's an eternal soul? destined for hell for eternity. This is, this is really real stuff. We study because it's a profitable doctrine of Scripture. We study prophecy to encourage godly living. And if He's coming back at any time, and indeed He is, the doctrine of imminence is all over the prophetic Scriptures. Wouldn't you want to be ready for that event? We study it. We see its imminence. We see some things coming together. And even if it doesn't happen in another hundred years, probably better to be prepared than not prepared, isn't it? Prepares us to live soberly and righteous so that we're not caught unaware at the return of our Savior and the sound of a trumpet. But even if you are, thanks be to God, you are rescued through the blood of Jesus Christ. (laughs) And so shall you ever be with the Lord. So, So shall you ever be. But don't you suppose that the Bema Seat judgment of Christ is really rooted in this living awareness that He's coming again? That has real ramifications for that Bema Seat and the missed opportunities of our lives. And finally, we said that we were doing this prophetic study to motivate believers to reach 
their world. I gave you an illustration from Penn and Teller, atheist Penn Jillette, who is still a raving atheist. Some people say, oh, I mean, he must have gotten saved. No, he didn't get saved. He's an atheist. He still mocks God. Was asked about someone who waited after one of his shows for a very long time to be ordered, just, just to be able to give him a Gideon New Testament, a little pocket New Testament. He waited until all of the signatures and everything took place, and he was asked about whether or not that irritated him, and here is Atheist Penn Jillette's response. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's really worth telling them or not telling them because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate someone to not proselytize and tell them that truth? How much do you have to hate somebody? If this is really real, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them? Here's what he says. I mean, if I believed, and he doesn't, this is the saddest part of the story for me. If I believed, and he doesn't, beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you, and you didn't see or believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you because there's something more important than the truck. Here's an atheist who's teaching us about faithfulness. And if you really, really believe this, why are you letting that truck barrel down to an impending disastrous collision? Why aren't you not tackling that person? If you believe what we've talked about in this study is really real, there's some people that we need to be tackling. And maybe we're just tackling them to tell them the truth because we can't save them, but we can tell them the truth. We can surely do that, can't we? We can tell our neighbors who are making bad decisions. We can tell our children who are making disastrous life choices. Stop, stop, stop. This is true. This is true. This is true. And that's why we study prophecy. It was a fast and furious study that highlighted some of the major events a lot of these are disputable. They're good and godly people on both sides. We happen to approach this from a dispensational premillennialist perspective, believing that the next great prophetic event is the rapture of the church. To make no mistake about it, people of all ages, of all times, believe that God would send a Savior and that He would rule and reign. And that time is coming in the millennial kingdom, and ultimately in the new heaven and in the new earth. Look at Revelation 22 as we wrap up our study, verse 8. Revelation 22, verse 8. Let's go to verse 6. And He said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of spirits of the prophets, has sent His angels to show His servants what must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, 
and the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant, and you and your brothers, the prophets, those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. It's that righteousness, that's that salvation, so that they might have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter into the city of the gates or by the gates. Outside are the unbelievers, the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexual immoral, murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. And the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star, and the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And the one who desires take the water of life without price. And I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. In other words, God said, this is really real. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The final words of John's prophecy, he reminds us that everything that unfolds in the eschatological future, everything that takes place under the sun from the minute of salvation or the minute of creation to the end of, of this world as we know it into the new heaven and a new earth, are encapsulated by the God of all creation, the sovereign one of the universe, secured through His Son, Jesus Christ. And He's coming again. So when you ask me again, and many of you have asked me for 20 years now, how can you say that you believe He's coming in your lifetime? I say to you, how can I not say it? Behold, I come. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Father, thank You for the time. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for our feeble understanding of that truth. We understand the main events. We don't understand all of its complexities. Perhaps we haven't even gotten the timing right, but we do know this. There is one Savior. There is one hope. There's one eternal promise. The God who holds everything in His hands and knows the end from the beginning will surely bring all of these things to pass. May we look at every life that we come in contact with as a living soul, an eternal soul. And may the things that we've studied at least create in us a sense of urgency to tell them about the truck, to tell 
tackle them so that they might hear. Then I pray that we would be able to leave it all in your hands. For the only one that knows the end from the beginning. Teach us to live soberly and righteous in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And even so, come, Lord Jesus, we pray. In the blood of Jesus, amen. Thank you. If you're interested in notes, please contact the church office via email.